Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about avoiding an expiration date. Yes, I like the idea of being unexpired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, so this episode is inspired by a story that came up last week, I guess. I stumbled across an interview uh, I did back in 2017 for IEEE Radio or Software Engineering Radio from IEEE. And they they asked me a bunch of questions about the mobile landscape. And, you know, at, in 2017, mobile had already clearly become the, the dominant computing platform. And that was my mm-hmm. whole consulting business was oriented around mobile strategy. And, you know, we were like 10 or, yeah, like 10 years into it at that point. And so I was listening to this. I barely even remembered doing the interview, but I had, but at that point, I had been doing speaking and I had written a bunch of books about it. And boy, did I have my talking points down. And I'm listening yeah. to it. And I'm like, wow, I really knew what I was talking. I forgot all of this stuff. You know, this is like, I was like, geez. And so on the one I love hand, when that happens, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, wow. It's I, a feel good moment. I do know what I'm talking about. Um, and, but so here's, here's what was crazy though. So like, so like my ego can't get too inflated because virtually none of it matters one bit four years later, like none of it, the landscape has so dramatically changed. The tech landscape has changed so dramatically in the intervening four years that like entire technologies have like created and, and, and gone out of style in that time. And it's just like, it just doesn't matter anymore. It's become like air, you know, and like making these sort of decisions about, you know, in consulting, everything depends. It depends on what it's like, well, what's your situation? What What are your constraints? What's your objective? And then they would go through their whatever their transformation was that they wanted to execute. And I'd say, okay, based on that, I would say do this, that and the other. And it's just gone. Like th- that stuff's just gone. You know. So the good news is you were great. The bad news is it's a dead asset. Yeah, the good news is I <laughs> <Right>? pivoted. <laughs> yeah, and where did I pivot? I pivoted up. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. what we wanted to talk about today, and, and I wrote an article about it, and I got some replies, like you know, from especially from from real technical people, and they're like, "What? But what do we do?" Right. Yeah. So that's what we want to talk about today: the kind of two sides of the coin of having highly specific, cutting edge technical content or, you know, whatever your message is, wherever you're putting your message out versus having more long-term evergreen content that's just not going to go out of style for years and years and the kind of pros and cons of those two things. Yeah, because there are pros and cons for each one. I mean, it's really easy to say, well, let's go do evergreen content, but to distinguish yourself with evergreen content, you've got to really slice and dice it in such a way that you've got something new to say, or you have something new to say to a different audience. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and so uh, what did happen in my career, I I did pivot, I was already, it had been a year that hourly billing is nuts had been published by the time I did that, that interview. So I was already pivoting at that point. And like I said, I pivoted up to the instead of the sort of technical minutia of building software up to the more evergreen concerns of running a software business, and especially with a a business model that was extremely foreign to most people, where you weren't trading time for money, but instead charging based on value and so forth. And Mm -hmm. the, the thing is, 
when I made that shift, I was mostly unaware of, or certainly I hadn't read a lot of classic, classic books in the sort of entrepreneurial solo business space. So mm-hmm. it's not like they weren't out there. There were a bunch and I read a few. I remember E-Myth Revisited was huge for me. Trusted mm-hmm. Advisor was huge. Yeah. Um, there were a couple. Value-based fees by Alan Weiss, that was huge. So there were mm-hmm. a few, but I mean, there are thousands, probably probably thousands of good books on sales, thousands of good books on marketing, thousands of good books on innovation, thousands of good books yeah. on strategy. Maybe not thousands on strategy. <laughs> of no, hundreds of thousands in strategy, but only a few good ones. Right. So, so then the thing is like, well, okay. You know, once I started to become aware of those things, then it was like, well, I'm, I'm just reinventing the wheel, which software developers hate. I suppose everyone hates it, but software developers really hate it. Uh, but the thing is, the people in my audience, since I was niched down on a very specific audience, especially at the time, I was really talking to just software developers, independent, self-employed software developers. They're not going to go read how to win friends and influence people. They're not going to go read, no. you know, a book by Harry Brown from the '60s and on sales. They're not going to read it. Hill. Even even value, uh, yeah, Napoleon Hill's another one. Even reading value-based fees 30 years later, or what is it? It was in the 80s, and where are we now? 40 years later, it has this patina of age that really makes it hard to believe that it applies anymore. And it does, but it's really hard to see past that. So a sort of new evangelist like me comes along and has learned a lot of it, a lot of these fundamental truths by practice. And so so my discussion and all my blogging and writing about it was all from like, just my personal experience. It was like, look, here's how I did mm-hmm. it. I think it'll work for other people. It might work for you. And I was blissfully unaware, I suppose, of the mountain of pre-existing material here. So that I guess the what I'm saying is there is this feeling when you're moving to more evergreen topics that you're either reinventing the wheel or just re- potentially rehashing something that's been said better previously, maybe a hundred times. But there's real legitimate value in almost like localizing it for an audience or a demographic or a psychographic or a period of time, whatever the thing is, or, you know, maybe you localize a topic about marketing or sales into the technology landscape that didn't exist five years ago. Like that's, that, mm-hmm. that could be, you know, if you, if you are careful about how uh, you straddle that divide, you could still create very evergreen, but up to the date content that stands the test of time, at least for a few years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the challenge here is to, I think what we do as professionals is we assimilate all of this other information. And I think of it as a consulting skill, right? Because you're, you're, you're getting all this information, and then you're synthesizing it into a point of view that has some, you know, key planks of your of your belief system. And ideally, that doesn't look exactly like anybody else. But one of the ways it doesn't look exactly like anybody else is because you carve it to your specific audience, like in your case, mm-hmm. um, software developers. So you can take all the th- all the really great stuff that has gone before, but you filter it through today. And you filter it through what do software developers who are running a business need to know. Mm-hmm. It's that that new filter is what makes it powerful. Right. Right. And and over time I have gone back and read a bunch of those books and it's like, oh okay, yeah, there is some good stuff in here. There's some stuff that I learned on my own, but wow, it's not just specific to me. It's something close to a a natural law. 
and and being able to kind of synthesize that down so that people in my audience don't have to go read all those books. I've yes. prob- probably read 200 books on, I don't know, sales and marketing and what, stuff like that. Stuff that software developers mm-hmm. would rather eat glass than do. <laughs> so if I can bring that to them in a funny way or a way that resonates with them or just the pieces that, that concern them or using language that doesn't repel them, then that's super valuable. You know, it, it, so anyway, not, uh, that I think those are that those are the pros and cons of having of going to more evergreen content because on the one hand it's probably all been said before but that doesn't mean there's you know that's that's the con but the pro is that there's probably a way that you can bring your unique worldview or personality or audience to mm-hmm. it that makes it fresh and valuable so it's that's the and, that's the trick i guess well and no probably about it I mean, if 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 it, that wasn't true, we wouldn't have as many books on the planet as we do right now. Yeah, that's true, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we all have unique filters and we have unique ways of looking at things. Um, you know, before the show, I was telling Jonathan a few years ago, I had a, a client who had written. Um, it's a book that sold over three million copies. It's still the Bible in its niche today. And someone new had come in and written a book that was heavily based on this particular work. And he was you know, privately offended, not publicly, but privately offended. And you know, when we talked about it, he said, "But, but it's all based on my stuff." And and they didn't they didn't reference my work. <laughs> you know, he was really offended. And I said, "Yeah, but this is a person with a very different audience. The message is still different. It's the core message is the same, mm-hmm. but it's been filtered for a new audience in a new way." And I think what was most offensive is the the person who wrote about this became a star in their own right too, yeah. and sold I don't know how many copies, but probably not three million, but certainly a million anyway mm-hmm. um, you know was on the talk shows and all that kind of stuff so right. yeah I mean it's absolutely possible and I think that we can't come from this purest view that we absolutely have to get something that's never been thought of before <laughs> right because yeah. probably somebody else has thought about it it's just how can we communicate it to our unique audience in a way that gives them some insight that they wouldn't have had otherwise right yeah, that was my experience when I would, you know, over time find out about these older books. People would recommend, oh, you'd probably love this book. You'd probably love that book because, you know, they read it and they heard echoes of it in what I was saying. And so there's this weird, it's it's definitely similar to a disappointment type of feeling when you're like, oh, I mean, I did think of this on my own. But then uh-huh. you go and read it and be like, but I was not the first one to think of it. <laughs> it's, like <laughs> right. a, it's like, oh, you know, and, and when I look back over I mean, I've been writing daily for since 2016. So it's like, it's something like 500,000 words. And the things in there that, that I think are truly unique. I mean, there are not many, there's not many that, that haven't been thought of before. And, and when I really think about it, mostly it's like a metaphor that hasn't been used to describe this. I mean, like some of these more evergreen topics are going to be, are kind of like fundamental truths of human nature, human behavior. And, uh, it, it, and reminded, especially for the software folks, I'm reminded of a, of an interview I heard where Jeff Bezos was getting interviewed at a, like a tech futurist kind of conference. And the, the host asked him like, what, what's going to be new in 10 years? What do we have to look forward to? And his answer shocked me, but in retrospect, it made perfect sense. He goes, he goes, well, I think a more interesting or more useful question would be to say, what's not different. What's not going to be different in 10 years. 
And mm-hmm. and that's where I want to skate to. That's the puck I want to chase. Like what's not going to, he's like, if you're going to, you know, think about it. If you're going to build perhaps what's looking like it could be the world's biggest company, you don't want to be chasing, you know, you, you can't, you're not going to be able to turn on a dime with 300,000 employees or 500,000 employees or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to turn on a dime. So the the smaller players are always going to be able to outskate you. But if you if you know where the puck's going to be and you just go there, that's the that's the that's the smart money, right? And it's working so far. He's like, and he went on to say, people are never going to want stuff shipped more slowly. People are never going to want to pay higher prices for stuff. They're always going to want lower prices, and they're always going to want their stuff faster, cheaper, faster. And you can see that they've been executing against that simple strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, in fact, it's really hard to get people to buy anything that has a shipping fee attached. Oh yeah. That's what Amazon has done. It's, yeah. Well, shipping is free. Right. And I mean, my my kids even know it. Like my like if we ever do, they see something in a YouTube video and like, oh, I want this like fidget tube from Vat19 or something. And, you know, all right, you know, order it. And like, when's it going to be here? Like five days. Five days? <laughs> They're shocked. Five days? It's usually here in like a day and a half. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah. So... Okay, so what are the benefits? So let's say that people can can let's say people right now are writing specific technical expiration date topics, cutting edge stuff. What are the benefits of doing that? Because there's pros and cons to that too, I think. Well, I mean, it's a lot easier to get attention, mm-hmm. right? Because if you've got the newest, sexiest whistle, right? <laughs> Everybody wants to go hear it. And it's it's easier to fan the flames and get people to, to follow you. Again, provided that you have a voice when you're talking about this that is attractive to your core audience. Because you're not going to be the only one talking about the hot, new, sexy stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's still competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a lot less, that's for sure. Um, I, I remember when I wrote the first iPhone book that I did, it was in, it, I wrote it in 2009. It came out in early 2010, which was only, you know, the world only had an iPhone in their pocket for, you know, a couple of years at that point. And business was really slow to adopt it compared, you know, Blackberry still had a real, real strong foothold. And, yeah. and there were, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I can think of three people besides me that were really drilling into what was going on here on this device. Maybe there were six on planet earth okay. that were that were talking about mm-hmm. this stuff and even even among the six of us let's say there were six i can only think of one that i would consider to be like a, not even a competitor there was so much work it didn't matter but but he was focused on the aspect of the phone the same exact aspect of the phone that i was mm-hmm. and yeah so there there was like very little competition but our popularity was not ours it was not it wasn't that we were popular it was that the iPhone was popular and it was yeah. only the iPhone back then. So so at first yeah. it was only the iPhone and it was popular. So when people wanted to, when people, cutting edge, innovator type early adopter people wanted to innovate on this platform, like they saw it, they saw the same thing I saw. Like this is everything from now on. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, it's a small list of people, but I, I didn't need many clients to make a very nice living. So <laughs> those early adopters, they weren't interested in me. They were interested in the iPhone. And then they looked around and they said, who's the expert on this? And they searched for books. And lo and behold, I had the first book. 
Here comes my <laughs> landscapers. That's I nice. feel like we're in a lumber mill. <laughs> what are they doing to my yard? It sounds like they're taking the fence down. I think they might be bulldozing your house, or you know, with the with the power saw. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, well, well actually, where, where I was going to go with this is, it sounds, it reminds me a little bit of um, of what in media we would call newsjacking, where you're basically hijacking a, a hot topic and you're putting your spin on it. In this case, you're hijacking a product. Right. And you're riding its coattails. And, you know, every product has an expiration date, pretty much. Yeah. It ended up being, you know, about 2017 that it it tailed off. It was like, yeah, it's just everywhere now. And every giant company had adopted it. And there's no there's no it depends anymore. It was like, no, we're totally doing everything on mobile. Duh. The other thing that's interesting about that, though, is is it's it's like there's a commoditization that happens, and I don't usually think of that with consulting, but I think in this case there is. When when your consulting is based on a technology and it's a new technology, over time more people are going to know, so the the price of the expertise goes down. It becomes commoditized. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. It became mainstream. Yeah. So the thing that this reminds me of is the Gartner hype cycle or the hype curve. I forget what it's called, but they do this technology curve that kind of tracks different technologies, popularity, and the kind of stages of it attempting to cross the chasm, as Jeffrey Moore would say. And my, I saw that mobile went up to the top of the hype cycle, and that was right where I jumped on. And so, so people weren't really, it wasn't that, that people were super interested in me. It was that they were interested in this hype and I could tell, I could feel when it went into the trough of disillusionment and then it went up to the plateau of adoption or whatever it's called. People can Mm -hmm. Google for Gartner hype cycle and see what I'm talking about. But they also, Gartner also maps a whole bunch of other technologies along that squiggle curve. And I was acutely aware in, say, 20, I'm not sure exactly when I became aware of it, but I could tell before I started to pivot to business stuff, I could tell that I was, it was over, it was over the, the hype cycle was over. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I've got, I need to pivot. And it, it's either going to be to the next thing coming up the curve, which at the time would have been uh, voice computing, which ended up never going quite as high. It could have been AI ML. It could have been blockchain. Uh, I think those were. I think those were the big things that were that looked like they might be the next thing. AR, VR, that stuff. And I was like, I am not interested in any of those things. Like, I don't want to get back on the hype curve. Uh, I did a little bit of voice computing. I was personally enamored with voice computing. I think it's really cool, uh, but it, it was nowhere near the kind of mainstream interest that mobile had. Not even close. So I was like, yeah, I could flog this into something, but I just don't care anymore. And all these people are asking me for for business model type advice. And that just seems like a much more fun puzzle and way, way more evergreen than blockchain <laughs> or, or right. whatever. I, I just right. the, the I mean, it's funny because it looks like a roller coaster. If you look at the if you look at the hype cycle, it looks like a roller coaster. And that's how it felt. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. So to, to, to go back to your point, like one of the pros, one of the advantages of being cutting edge is that you're kind of co-opting 
or newsjacking. You're kind of co-opting the hype that that some product or technology or something has built up, and you're just kind of like strapped to that that horse, and it's it's pulling you along. So, well, and the problem with that, though, is that you don't always realize that that's what's happening. Because when you're in the midst of that cycle, it feels like you're you're guiding the horse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's that's the that's the danger is as long as you're clear about it, then you can look to what's going to be next. At some point in the cycle, you can start to remove yourself from the hype and start putting yourself in service to whatever the next big idea is. But it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's not something you're really managing. It might feel like you are, but you really aren't. It's right. managing you. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll notice it if you don't realize you're not you're not steering the horse or whatever the term is. Um, you just start to notice like a decreased number of leads. You start to no cre- mm-hmm. in, uh, notice downward pricing pressure because there are more and more and more and more alternatives to hiring an expert like you. There are platforms and off-the-shelf stuff and, and your expertise gets built into products so that people don't even have to make these decisions anymore and they can just gravitate to a product that has it built in. You know, like for, just to give you an example to the listener, some of the some of the most valuable information I had for people in the early days was how to make a desktop site more mobile friendly, you know, and then responsive web design became a thing. But after a while, it took a while, but eventually, you know, giant platforms like WordPress and Squarespace and all of them had responsive templates like out of the box. So mm-hmm. all, all of that bespoke expertise became invalidated for half of the sites on the internet. It felt like overnight. You know, it's yeah. like, why would we hire someone like you to like hand roll our CSS when we could just like use WordPress and it just works? It's like, yeah, I, I don't know why you would. It's the, well, the use cases became smaller and smaller. Yeah. And, and it is challenging because when you're in the midst of this, we have to be looking for the signs that mm. things aren't working. I'm thinking of someone that I, uh, I had a, a sales conversation with and he was describing what was happening to his business. And I said, well, um, it sounds like you were the first mover in this. And he goes on to explain five years ago, you know, he was the only firm and this is what they were doing. And, but now there's a lot of competition and he just hadn't thought about it that way. He just, his idea was, well, I'm going to keep doing the same thing, but how come I'm not selling as much? How come I've hit this, this inflection point or supposed inflection point, but it's not, I'm stuck. I'm sitting here. Well, yeah. it's because if you look around at your competition, they're doing the same things you are, and they're doing it differently and cheaper. Yeah, you can't stop innovating. Yeah, it just it's it's impossible, and it's it gets especially when we have our own firm, whether it's a solo or maybe a small boutique. It can get insular because we think about what we're doing for our clients, and it's great, and we see the outcomes, and we're working together, and we're producing stuff that's great, and it feels good. But then the leads start to trickle off. That's no fun. No. No. <laughs> yeah. No fun at all. Okay. So how would, how would someone who's kind of in that situation, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, man, I have been riding a horse. This isn't me driving the car. So many metaphors. Um, I, I like to mix a metaphor. <laughs> metaphor <laughs> you mix them with the best of them. <laughs> but yeah, so all of a sudden you realize like, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I knew what I was talking about or I know what I'm talking about, but just not as many people care. It's commoditized. It doesn't matter as much. So 
what what do they do? What would you do if it was you? Say you were me and the hype cycle is ending, all the excitement is like mobile's not sexy anymore. What are your options do you that you see? Well, I look to see what is really enchanting me right now. And and maybe this is just me. I I get bored doing, you know, just one thing for too long. So if I were if I were on a horse like that for five years or 10 years, I'd probably be looking around going, well, what's going to be next? Either if I'm addicted to that, that ride, I'm going to be looking for what's the next horse I can get on. If I'm not, if I'm saying, what do I really want to do next, then I would start to look at of the last, you know, five or 10 engagements that I've been on, and engagements could be a speaking engagement, doesn't have to be clients. What are the things that I was really excited about? What are the things I'm curious to pursue? Because I think the answer is usually somewhere in there. It's where your curiosity takes you as a starting point. That doesn't mean there's a market for what you're curious about, but it does start to take you in a new direction. And when you're curious, you can ask those questions and start to think about and play with, you know, kind of that beginner's mind idea. And it's it's actually, I think it's fun when you've been, you know, riding that horse and you're at the top of the field in this very exclusive way to then think about, well, what would I do next? What What's interesting over here versus, um, you know, uh, somebody kicking you off the horse, which would be a different experience. <laughs> yeah, that's no fun. Yeah. Um, or the horse just dies, which is kind of what we've been talking about. Yeah. Hello, Flash developers. I feel bad for you. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you described basically what happened with me where I was like, I'm like, not only was I seeing leads go down and I was I was hearing myself I mean, the reason my my talking points were so good on that 2017 interview was because I was saying the damn thing all the time. It was like I was yeah. get, I was boring myself. I was like, is this still even true? Like, I don't even <laughs> or is this just what I say when people ask me this question? And, and it, it would it was still true. But but I got I started to get that feeling, you know, I was like, I didn't feel like I was growing in any way because mm-hmm. and the reason why the reason was because the the thing that I was focused on had kind of stopped growing. It kind of like got to, it got to its natural gigantic, but natural size. And I noticed that there was something else. There was a new problem to solve and it was a much, much more interesting to me problem, which was how to set prices. Like to me, that is the the most pricing is like the most fun puzzle to think about of all time. Cause I love solving problems. That's ah. how I got into software and like pricing is the most fun puzzle ever. I love it. Uh, ah. It's it's this sort of blend between art and science and I just absolutely love it. So I was like, that would be really fun. That would be fun for a long time. Um, and I had laid some groundwork for that kind of a pivot accidentally just responding to, to people's requests. So previous colleagues who knew that I, I left a good job to try value pricing and those sorts of things. And the people were like, oh, wow, how'd it go? It went great. Well, how do you do it? Because I hate timesheets. <laughs> and so I had some blog posts and I had some material and I knew there was some interest, uh, but it was just, it wasn't like scientific or anything. It was just like anecdotal and gut instinct and stuff like that. But I knew I loved it. I knew I loved thinking about it and I knew there were some interest. And that's, that's when I released Hourly Billing is Nuts. But I like your point because it's kind of an abstract, what you, how you described is like the abstract version of that, where you look back over some recent engagements, maybe look back six months to a year and 
think about, yeah, what have, what has been the most exciting thing for me to talk about where you have that beginner's mind and you're like, this is so much fun to think about and talk about. And it's, and you, you know, if it was in the context of some kind of an engagement, then you'd have at least a little bit of insight into how much interest there was in that particular piece of it. You know, Mm -hmm. did, did people ask you questions about that at your talk or did the client ask to hear more about this one particular aspect? Um, is in, and I suppose in the context of this episode, we should say, and is it a higher level, more evergreen topic where, where maybe for me back when I was talking about mobile, everybody wanted to talk about like at a certain point, they all wanted to talk about media queries and responsive images and how do we do this? How, 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 how? And then often I would be like, well, it depends. Can we talk about why you would and what your situations are? And what That's your objective is. That's a big is. shift. Huge, right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And so it could be that right now, dear listener, you're in your engagements that maybe are more tactical in nature and very specific and technical and very version numbery, you know, tied to the latest version of React or Rails or, or Angular or whatever. There might be a thing that you do at the beginning that's more strategic and high level and it's more about objectives and, and, and strategy and why you would do something. Uh, why you're even asking. And and it could be that there's something in there that you really love doing. And that is your, I call it like a, it's like a, a half pivot. It's not a full pivot. For me, it was, it was, wasn't, I did a bunch of half pivots in my career. I feel like going, going full business was a full pivot because I changed audiences, but uh, well, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a cold start. It wasn't a cold start. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a complete starting over kind of thing, even though it was dramatically different topic area. But anyway, the idea is to maybe look for some clues, just like you said, Rochelle, it's like, what, what have you been having fun talking about recently? And then see if there's some way, I I do like to have a little bit of a continuity in the story. Well, yeah, but if you follow your curiosity, the continuity will be there. Yes. Sometimes it takes a little work to uncover it and figure out how to tell the story, but yep. it, it will be there if you follow your curiosity. Right. If you follow opportunity, it won't be there or probably yeah. it'll be a lot harder to find yeah. if you're just being opportunistic about like, oh, blockchain's the next big thing. I'm going to bet on that. And it's like, well, why'd you switch from mobile to blockchain? It's like, oh, I wasn't getting enough leads in mobile. It's like, that's not a fun story to hear. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're just like chasing the dollar. Like, is that what you're going to do in your life? You know, it's not a great story. Well, yeah. And, and when you told the story of how you got there, you followed the Venn diagram that, you know, I've been talking about forever, which is talents, passions, and a market for the services. Mm-hmm. So you knew what your talents were. You found this passion around this pricing puzzle. And then you heard little in- inklings that there was a market for that in your conversations with developers. And then you explored that. But you mm-hmm. found a way to bring all three of those together. And that's how you find the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and hopefully, the idea here is that you could, I mean, if you wanted to smooth a transition, so it was, so you had a little bit more certainty um, about any kind of transition. I mean, honestly, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't have to be a career change, really. What you right. could do, if I was, if I was going to, you know, if someone was, if I was coaching someone, they were like, uh, I'm getting, if they just simply said, I'm getting sick of of writing articles every day that have an expiration date. You know, they, they have a shelf life. As soon as the next version of React comes out, this article is going to be useless. 
-hmm. So they, they might have a sense that they should be, air quotes, should be writing more evergreen content, but they're not sure what to do. I would say, well, you know, if you're writing on a regular basis, which I would strongly recommend or speaking on a regular basis, even if it's just podcasts and webinars and that kind of thing, experiment with sprinkling in some higher level topics that are relevant to your exact same audience, just the people in the audience who might be thinking a little bit higher level. And they're not looking for tactics. They're looking for something a little higher level and, and see which ones get a really positive reaction. I'm, I'm often surprised when I write, you know, I write something or we talk about something that I would consider more woo-woo, as you like to put it. Um, the reaction <laughs> no, is... Woo-woo is your word. <laughs> is it? Okay. A little bit more inspirational a, poster. I, I love a little woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm often surprised by the volume of response. So it's like, huh, okay. You know, if there's a... You know, if I, I, I might fear or veering into... Um, you know, grocery store checkout territory, but, but it, it often I'm proven wrong because people are like, wow, I really needed to hear that right then. And, you know, so you can experiment in the same way. It's like publish, don't just write it and put it in a folder, publish mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more, a little bit bigger thinking, a little bit bigger idea, a little bit less tactical, which might feel weird. Uh, it might feel like this isn't going to help anyone. It's not specific enough. Uh, that, yeah. that that's how it can feel the but then voices. when you get right yeah but then when you get the reaction if you get a reaction then you'd be like wow that helped you know so maybe there's something at this higher altitude that i can talk about uh that will continue to to produce this result and then over time you can just do sprinkle in more of that stuff and mm -hmm. it's a sort of non-threatening non-risky way to explore some of the you know the more classically evergreen topics like what what was marie forleo's like <laughs> she kind of nailed it with her three topics oh like, rich happy and hot was yeah. the thing before b-school <laughs> right yeah it's like everybody wants to be happy rich and fit yeah just look at any magazine cover or oprah archive it's like the, those are the topics that automatically track people it feels like everything's been said but if you if you're in a tactical space and you want, I guarantee you, if you, you can go up, increase your altitude of, of like how you're discussing it. So maybe getting into the, the why someone would ask, like, here's how to edit a podcast. Well, well, maybe you do an article about why, why would you want to edit a podcast? Why would you, you know, <laughs> maybe there's right. landscapers in the background. Um, <laughs> you know, why would you want to do that? Why, do, why even have a podcast in the first place? Ask the bigger questions. Instead of just like, this is the perfect mic, this is the perfect software, here's where you edit it, here's how to, you know, the levels and all that. You can have that stuff, but if you if that's what you're currently doing, because people are attracted to that stuff, even though it goes out of date quickly, uh, then, you know, you can sort of do these more long-term evergreen, I mean, that's the word that's used, evergreen articles about the bigger picture. And and don't worry that you think like, oh, this is this is too vague. This is too nonspecific. This isn't going to help anyone because it will. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think the other thing is that as you do this, you start to develop a voice. And what I like about this, especially for people in technical fields, is when they talk like real people. Again, it depends on your audience. If your audience is highly technical, you need to meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. But when somebody you know doesn't use like really strict English, 
right? Mm-hmm. I don't want like that sort of high English. And, and they talk to me like I'm a person, or they break something down, or they make a, a metaphor that clicks something for me. So it's not just in um, the topic you're writing about. It's the way that you write, or let's say communicate, because it could be a podcast mm-hmm. or a video as well. Mm-hmm. That stuff is really powerful. And I think the people who are really good at that tend to underestimate its value. Right. So yeah, if like, you're in that technical field and you have that ability, you're amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah I mean, it is. It might as well be, like in my world, it might as well be that every sales and marketing book ever was written in Latin because no one's going to read them. Like basically no solo software developer is going to read any of those books. They're in Latin. So I, you know, <laughs> unless they learn Latin, which is some, some of them will. So if you come along and translate, into their language, I translate into a language that they understand. I mean that yes. sort of literally and metaphorically, then that is worthwhile. You know, even if you didn't have like invent the idea, you're still adding value. You can think of it, oh, it's almost like curation, but it's, it is more like trans translation. Translation. Yeah. Right. Because you also have, you have two different scenarios in the far ends of the spectrum. You could have a really technical audience that needs to understand something that's a broader than something technical. And you could have a, an audience who is more generalist and they need to understand something really specific. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got all those points in between. And part of this is just finding your point on the spectrum with your audience. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So in general, you know, if you're, if you're a listener to this show, I would say that in general, it's going to create leverage for you if you are writing more evergreen topics. Yeah. It's because that's just less work. Like it'll continue to produce good results for people and not just starting over every six months, you know, uh, from scratch. So I, I think it's got some obvious benefits. And uh, yeah, the challenge is finding that language to make the old new again for your particular audience. Yes. And, and it sounds like that's insurmountable, but it isn't. And it's not um, where you sort of wave your magic wand and instantly you have it, but it's a process mm-hmm. where you find that language. And I, I think, Jonathan, when you described that old podcast episode, I mean, it was great to listen to because you could go, wow, I really got that. But now that asset is useless. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we all want is to have those old podcast episodes be still relevant. So somebody that's listening to that goes, oh man, I need to go over to his website and find out what he's doing now. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. cause that's what we want. And it's, it feels weird sometimes because we have to find a way to make it ours and to make it not sound exactly like anybody else, but yeah. that's where the value is. Right. Right. That's the, that's kind of the risk is being derivative. So, so yeah. you don't want that. So you do need to find your own angle on it for sure. Uh, and, and then, but as long as you do that, it'll be great. Mm-hmm. And since you mentioned podcasts, one of the, one of the unique characteristics of podcasts is that they have a massively long tail, like the longest tail yeah. ever, you know, in terms of bang for the buck, like they will, if you're doing podcast tours, you're guesting on shows and stuff like you want, yeah. I mean, if you were, if you're doing that, you're going to want the most evergreen topics possible. You're going to want to emphasize those when you go on a podcast because they last like forever. So as long as the podcast, even if they stop publishing it, but let's say they, they continue publishing it, people are going to keep finding that new podcast to them. It's a new podcast. And then they're going to yep. go through the back catalog. Yep. If they like it and like, boom, there you are. 
And if if the art the the interview they come across is like responsive web design for the enterprise, it's just like skip. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. that's that's solved. That's a solved problem. It's well, like, okay. I've, had, I've had people reach out and ask me about like episode, you know, fifty something. You know, we're at almost two hundred. I'm sitting there going, really, episode fifty mm. something? But you know, it's they they binged on, as you put it, the back catalog, or they happen to see. I have you know everything is on. It's kind of autopilot, so that the old um, the old episodes still are rotated in social media. So they might have seen it that way. But it, it's I mean, it's fascinating. It lives forever. Which is the downside if you sucked at an interview. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, but the upside is, you know, it's there. It's right. there. So you want it to keep keep working for you. You want it to keep helping people, which as a side effect is going to keep helping you because it'll draw people to you. So that's that's great. Anyway, so I, yeah, I wasn't didn't occur to me before we started recording this, but I do think that if you were gonna if if you were trying to be sort of strategic about where you would put your more evergreen content then yeah i think podcasts would be a great place to you know if you're going on somebody else's show it's like suggest topics that you know you've got you found your voice on you know what your angle is but it's a it's a more evergreen style topic because something about podcasts the the consumption model they just last forever so yeah and then i I would be a little bit i was was gonna say i'd be a little bit more not not you know with like tweets i would care less about how evergreen it was like i don't really care about an evergreen evergreen tweet right you know at the right. other end of the spectrum right yeah well i was thinking you know one of the really fun things when someone asked me to to um guest on their podcast is i like to look and see who their audience is and take a quick look and see you know what have they talked about before and if you can find something that marries what you think their audience is really interested in and what you do and this is when the host is inviting you, they get so excited about the topic. Like they can't wait to do it. And of course, so do you, because you know yeah. that's what we want. We want to get people excited. But the flip side is if you're proposing yourself as a guest on the podcast, by doing that, you're almost insured if you have the reputation that matches their podcast of getting mm-hmm. a yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, 100%. Like that's my first question is like, can you tell me about the audience? What, do, what does the audience want? Yeah. And you know, and then look for an overlap in the Venn diagram between that and stuff I can talk about with some degree of confidence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hundred percent. It's all about it's all about making the audience's life better. That's what the host wants. That's what the audience wants, and it's also in your best interest. So uh, yeah. finding when you're doing that, if you have an opportunity to d- you even discuss that back and forth with a host, then yeah, like try and skew toward the more long term evergreen topics and the host is probably going to want that too they're not going to want like you know an, an episode to be like about you know like portal tricks in filemaker 9 it's like okay that might have been interesting in 2002 but i mean i wrote a whole book with a version number on it. That, was, <laughs> that was that was when i learned this lesson you know 2006 or something like not yeah. doing that again yeah so yeah that's, i mean that's a, that's another thing to consider it's kind of like while we're talking about different outlets for your content you know, if you're, if, if the more, I think the longer term the thing is, the more investment you have to put into it and the longer it's going to live or the lo- longer you want it to live, the more evergreen it should be. So like, you know, podcast episodes we already covered, but if, if I was going to write a book now, it's going to be at the, the highest level that I can f- confidently speak. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. a book. 
So I'm going to go as high level as I can. And as, as you know, I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, he's like, asked me like, how do I start a daily mailing list? And I had two reactions to it. There was like a whole bunch of tactical stuff. And I was like, depending on how I responded to this or, or what I did with this information that, that there might be an interest in how to do this particular thing. If it was going to be a book, it would be a very different answer than if it was just going to be a private email reply. It would probably be a lot more tactical. And I was thinking, what if I did write a, could I write a book about this? Is that enough material there for a book? And I kept thinking like, there's so many pieces of the book that I would have to link out to a web page because, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the software that I would recommend would be change every year. Yep. And as just like, as I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, this is probably, there's probably too much software involved with writing a daily email list for me to even do a book about it because it would just go out of date so fast that mostly it would be pointers to like blog posts where I, <laughs> that I would keep updated, like, you know, best email software, you know, uh, 2021. And it's like, well, then maybe it shouldn't be a book. I was going to say, that sounds like a really high maintenance, boring book to write and to right. maintain. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's my point. So if you're like, if you're thinking about writing a book, keep it as kind of like, I almost want to say ivory tower or like high level stuff that's, well, I guess that's not necessarily it. It's really, it's just well, keeps coming back to evergreen. It's like these, yeah. these topics aren't going to go out of style. And so th- those make a good cate- book category. So I'd lump those into a good book category. And then things that, that you just want to, you know, you're just capitalizing on attention uh, in an ethical way, not like super duper gross newsjacking clickbait stuff. But, you know, if you would just want to capitalize on, on a trend, don't write a book about it. Write a tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> or something in between. But something yeah, I mean, I think the, the key is evergreen because when you write a book, um, especially today, you probably want to niche the book to a particular audience in a particular topic. But within that, you want a big idea. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's a big idea book. You want that to be at a high level, but evergreen, I think, is the key word we want to we want to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, it sounds like the lawnmower is descending back <laughs> on the property, so we should probably <laughs> wrap up here. The landscaper has said it is time yes. to end. <laughs> Alas. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.